Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Uh, this is Lindsay. And Kira. And uh, yeah, we're excited to be back for another week of uh, scintillating conversation. Um, Kira, <laughs> how, how are you? How are things going in your home? They're good. They're good. I'm, I've been a little under the weather this week, but other oh. than that, it's just fine. You know, we're, it's, I don't know, seems like this is the way we've always done it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. hope not under the weather in any scary ways. I feel like no, no, no. Feel... I know I shouldn't say that. Yeah, and it because of course it does make you nervous in a different way than it did before. Yeah, but no, just a little bit um, tired and you know all. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. But yourself, how's everything over there? Uh, all right. I mean, I think it is actually. I feel like I've been having more highs and lows recently, mm -hmm. um, and like they're the maybe the the highs are higher the lows are lower um and i, I definitely agree with that <laughs> <laughs> there's something about the patients wearing thin um yep. of, of um uh, yeah i mean uh, of of wanting some resolution that isn't coming you know that that yeah. kind of thing um sure. but um not not to say that the biggest issues here are issues of patience but it's just yeah it's a, it's a lot yeah, of things. for sure for a sure. lot of emotions but generally fine you know good feeling good still still in a good pattern still in a good routine still really happy to be uh reading and watching and thinking about how the world is changing yep um, there's lots of interesting conversations being prompted by this yeah massive but, shift um so that's pretty fascinating in yeah. many ways. I wish I had more time to just absorb all of that because there's so much of it going on. Yeah, I I am actually impressed by the people that manage to absorb as much as they do while having full-time jobs, which I don't have. And you know, like having all the time in the world to absorb is is a great luxury right now. Right. <laughs> I feel a sort of a sense of responsibility, you know, to like tell people what I'm reading and what is worth you know, investing some minutes of your day into reading versus not, because it is sort of a lot of the same, you know. Um, sure, yes, there's a lot of this of different versions of the same thing floating around. Yeah, um, yeah. But in our world, I think there's so many interesting conversations about the role of public space and physical space um, in all different, you know, in school and of course work, there's so much workplace conversation happening. Yeah. Um, but also really how we think about um, health and well-being and not just germs and distance in those spaces, right? And really what health and well-being mean in a much broader sense. So that's a positive thing, I think, and a yeah. productive thing, not just a reaction negative yeah, thing. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's, um, it's weird to know that like the this issue of the environmental or physical determinants of health was maybe less of a known thing uh, six months mm -hmm. ago than it is now. And um, so for, yeah, for those of us that think about that a lot, it's cool to watch it being covered more uh, in the news and then on people's minds and things. I, um, right. 
Yeah, I, I also think, I mean, I'm super fascinated by these issues that I think are starting to nag at us in our industry. There was a piece in the New York Times yesterday about commercial real estate in Manhattan in particular. This mm -hmm. announcement that um, Twitter is encouraging employees to work from home if they like it. Right. And I'm hearing a lot of the same thing from other Silicon Valley companies. Oh, sure. You know, so like a lot of a lot of this potential decrease for commercial real estate demand. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, Jigger Shaw actually posted about it on LinkedIn. I, I enjoy following Jigger. He's always got cool. He's always also somehow manages to have a full time job and read everything <laughs> no news all the time. Right. But, uh, I'm just really fascinated by what is happening there um and how yeah. we're starting to rethink what I mean, people seem well people always like the idea of turning one building type into another building type you know like parking lots into yep. housing and apartments right yeah all of the stuff um i haven't seen a whole heck of a lot of it actually happen but i think it's always i mean you know nothing like a big societal shakeup to make someone actually try to turn a commercial building into a housing uh, sure. Situation. <laughs> so, we'll I see. think there will be. I mean, it is intriguing. Any big shift is going to come. You know, lots of innovation, innovative ideas, and actual applications will come out of that, and that's exciting in many ways. I'm excited to see what what this kind of public health literacy ends up doing yeah. for in terms of a general awareness. I think I've said stuff about that before, but I mean, and it's a little early to tell. I mean. It's almost a, like a reluctant public health literacy too, because not everybody, we're not really sure we wanted to know everything we're knowing now about this, but but we do, and we're beginning to see what that really means. Yeah, I think um, there's actually one, there's a website um, that I found recently that might be helpful for folks that are interested in some of the COVID-19 sort of resources um, that, is a nice shorthand. It's um, it's Lane Burt, who is a friend of for many of us. His website is Ember Strategies, mm -hmm. Ember like the embers of a fire. And he's he and um, and a couple of folks, uh, um, Seema Bangar, who is wonderful and I've known for a long time and work with at WeWork, uh, and Jeremy Sigmund have been working on a sort of co coalescing a bunch of things, resources, and ideas, and websites. Um, so if people are looking for commercial real estate resources specifically, or just built environment resources around COVID-19, it's a, it's, it's a nice uh, go-to, I would suggest, for sure. Check it out. Uh, and they also have like a listserv you can, you can sign up for. I think they're doing kind of discussions and emails and things. Cool. Uh, That's great. So yeah. 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 yeah, lots going on. Plowing ahead. Um, well, speaking of health, we have a very exciting guest for today. Um, we have Mara Baum with us. Uh, Mara is a principal at HOK. She leads HOK's global health and wellness design practice with a focus on improving the well-being of people who spend time in the buildings and communities that they design and build. So welcome, Mara. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. You've been on our list for all sorts of reasons, and we're just super pleased that you could make it. So welcome. Mara, maybe the best place to start is to just for our listeners to get a little bit of understanding about um, your path and how you came to architecture generally, but then also sustainable design and, and health and well-being specifically. Well, I've always loved architecture 
and I mean really always, some of my earliest memories as a preschooler were of buildings. That's what I remember from my childhood. It's not the people, it's the buildings. Okay, well, maybe some people. Um, so naturally, I went to college in architecture school, but less than naturally, I became incredibly disillusioned and almost left the profession because I happened to go to a school where at that time, the focus was on, was on the creation of a beautiful object that didn't necessarily have any real role for humanity. Um, it wasn't until later in my schooling and then when I worked um, eventually later on for HOK, working on the HOK guidebook to sustainable design, the first edition, that I realized that there was just so much more um, and we could have a, a, a huge impact. Um, and my interest in, in health and health and well-being was a natural outcropping of all of this. Can you say more about like that interest in health and well-being? Did it come about um, from any particular things that you learned when you were studying, or how did it how did it happen that you started thinking about that connection between you know buildings and health? I don't think there was ever a single aha moment or something I studied or identified. Um, more that it was just obvious to me that, duh, of course we were focused on sustainability because of people. Now, you know, like polar bears are cute and whales are important and, you know, save the planet and whatnot. Um, but from my perspective, the reason that we've always been focused on sustainability um, is because of the impact that this has and that the, the natural environment has on people, on human health. So that's always been a part of my focus. It wasn't until later that I realized that wasn't necessarily true for everybody else. Yeah, yeah. I remember realizing that too. It was sort of an interesting thing. Well, like it, to some degree, I feel like we've, we're in a community where people can get a little bit singularly focused, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, I know you experienced that to some extent. I wonder if you might, like even just talking about some of the early work you were doing with the USGBC and all of that, how, how, how did you kind of come to find that health was not something that everyone else uh, thought about? I think you're referring to the USGBC's Ginsburg Fellowship that I had in 2006 and 7. I was brought on to do an analysis of federal, state, and private investment into green building research funding, um, and then later to contribute to a green building research agenda. Um, this was a series of reports that identified a major gap that the building industry has in funding as compared with the percentage of GDP that we make up. In other words, we deserve a lot more than we were getting at the time. And as a result of that, um, our industry became much better funded at prim primarily at the federal level. Through that process, health was always, of course, at the forefront of my mind. And health was included in those documents and, and the impact of buildings on occupant health and also on uh, larger public health issues. I was told later that people who also share an interest in health flagged those documents as some of the first ones available at the national scale that really highlighted in a big way the need for more research into the health impacts of buildings. That was pretty eye-opening for me. Yeah, I remember them well, and I do think that is true. It was, um, it just wasn't forefront, I think, for a lot of people um, before that time. Um, so yeah, can you talk a little bit about where that work went and, and how it how it has uh, tied into the work that you do now? Yeah, at that time, the work was oriented towards 
um, action at primarily the federal level in order to improve funding streams from EPA and DOE, um, Department of Energy, as well as a handful of other directions. The USGBC also created its own um, research fund at that time. And have the, the USGBC's continued to fund Ginsburg Fellows um, to do research on different types of topics. Um, I, I did not continue with that direct work. The fellowship was a, you know, a short-term proposition. Um, but my focus on health certainly continued into my work as a practicing architect. Um, I worked for a series of firms that um, focused, among other things, on healthcare projects. At that time, this is maybe 10, 15 years ago, I had a hard time talking about health on a day-to-day -day basis in my design work without getting laughed out of the room. So of course, healthcare was one sector where we could easily have those open conversations. And this is the one type of client that really is definitely interested in health um, in make, as, a, as a part of the basis for decision making. Yeah, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that getting laughed out of the room part, because I think today, like if you're a professional just coming into the world of green building now or building in general, it, it's, it's clearly a topic. And I think people might have a hard time understanding why that wouldn't have been logical, you know, five mm -hmm. years ago, even. Do you want to like explain why the laughing happened or what the disconnect <laughs> was? Right. It's so funny, isn't it? Um, wouldn't we all love to know? But, you know, as the sustainability profession evolved, you know, among the earliest movements was to be very clear about basing our decision making around the financial value of savings from things like energy efficiency, water efficiency, reduced maintenance, because we were such a, a new set of criteria compared with the way our professions had been working for, you know, hundreds of years, we really had to prove ourselves in those ways. And so, so many of us got really tied down into making decisions um, in that capacity. And, you know, Sarah Neff, she, you, you all interviewed her a few weeks ago and she spoke very eloquently about that. And I couldn't agree more that there were moments when we got, we, we really tied ourselves in, in knots trying to uh, make decisions based on those criteria without necessarily standing back and looking at the bigger picture around why we're doing some of these things at a large scale in the first place. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, I, I have been reflecting on that a lot these days because I think for all of us in the green building movement, um, it was very exciting to be able to pitch something that not only was um, had some inherent moral goodness, but also was going to save money. And so we did that Mm -hmm. um, so convincingly that it was very hard for us to ever pitch something that was just morally good, <laughs> but didn't save money, <laughs> you know, we just got so it's the right thing to do. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, I think that explains it pretty well. Um, if that resonates Mara, that that's, yeah. sort of, um, and you know, it's tricky because now the way that I sometimes frame these issues is, of course, we can clearly document financial benefit of certain types of health and well-being strategies. Um, but for the most part, the value as it relates to human potential is so outsized, it's so enormous that we simply can't afford to not do them. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, fast forward to today's world, my goodness, the notion of health and well-being in the built environment, it's never been so important as it is today. It's shocking, really. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's actually kind of um, helping me navigate a lot of these conversations that are now happening within politics about the balance of economic health and human health. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, we're, we're well, we're, we have we have been down that path many times in thinking about uh, what is the value of doing something uh, just for human health and how does it affect the economy and, you know, like all that stuff. It's uh, very relevant. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like over the course of my career, um, the world I've surrounded myself in, whether that be my college institution or now this much larger pandemic world, um, we've undergone a clear transformation from you know, design being focused exclusively on beauty and aesthetics um, to being able to think about design within the context of sustainability, but not an overwhelming focus on health. Then I focused on health specifically within healthcare projects and brought that to other projects where I could. And fast forward a few years ago, I feel like the rest of the world is starting to catch up and is starting to think about the impact of health on other building types, not just mm-hmm. hospitals, partly through the advent of things like the Well Building Standard and FitWell and, and other programs like that. But it still was a little bit of a niche topic. But now it's all any anybody ever wants to talk about. It's amazing. Yeah, so many. It's yeah, it's exciting. It's it's so strange to watch, but it's great. Um, okay, well, just a side question for you about your career. You, um, I have been very impressed to watch that you are, uh, you're a fellow of AIA and you're a lead fellow. And um, I was just hoping you could talk to those accomplishments, especially for those listeners who might have those as life goals for themselves. What does it mean to you to pursue something like that or to be given that honor? Can you talk about it? Has it changed things for you in any way? They're obviously both very great honors, but two very, very different types of honors. For me, the lead fellow was almost a no-brainer. It was very straightforward. When it was first announced, I had been focusing my career on sustainability and lead almost exclusively for quite some time, really from almost the very beginning. I started working with lead in in around 1999 at HOK um, at that time. Of course, when I first applied, it wasn't really exactly clear what they were looking for. So then I had to go and apply again um, before finally becoming a fellow in, in 2013. Um, the FAIA is, is a different path. It's a, I found it to be far more complicated and, and challenging. Um, but to be blunt, you know, the only FAIAs I knew at that time, or almost only, were, well, mostly men. And people within, I don't know, maybe 15 ish years of retirement, which is not where I was at that time, it didn't even occur to me that a mid-career professional could even apply until a childhood friend of mine became FAIA when she wasn't even yet 40. Um, The design director of HOK's San Francisco office, he first suggested I apply it a few years ago, back when I wasn't even eligible yet. It it didn't occur to me, but he, he was a great mentor through that process. Um, I think, you know, the, the lessons I, I learned were that it is just absolutely important for, um, for you if you're thinking about pursuing something like this 
to find a friend, a colleague, a mentor who you can really talk through the details with and also really be able to be critical with someone who can tell you that you're crazy or full of it um, or pull out the ideas that are, are really good. Um, I'm not sure I'm exactly allowed to say this here, but Kira was essential um, in that process for me. She really helped me out quite a bit um, with my FAI, FAIA application. It's still a mouthful to say, <laughs> but, uh, but that was much appreciated. That's, That's awesome. Great. I didn't know that you did that, Kira. I uh, <laughs> I don't really advertise it. <laughs> You're a woman. Of but it is, I mean, that process is really a big storytelling exercise, which I find extremely fun, especially with people who's, who've had very interesting career paths, such as Mara. Um, I mean, I had a great time sort of helping with that. It was, it was really fun. Well, I'm glad you thought it was fun because fun is not a word I would typically use to describe um, that kind of bear. No, it's never fun for the person <laughs> who's doing it. That's for sure. That's for sure. Well, and I wanted to ask you, this is actually a related career question, um, Mara, about, you know, you're, you work with a very large firm and I think, you know, that, that question as people, be, you know, navigate and plot their careers, um, is, is one, you know, what, where can I have impact? What type of environment can I, you know, make an impact within? And I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about what being with a large practice has meant to you um, and what that context means for you now in terms of, you know, clients and impact and, and what you get out of your career on a day-to-day -day basis, but also sort of longer term. It is so funny how our careers evolve in ways we never expected. <laughs> I went to college in St. Louis, which is where HOK was founded. And at that time, they were really still the big show in town, mm -hmm. which by definition, the rebel that I was meant that I would never work for them. <laughs> I would never sink so low. But then I was laid off from a small firm um, and took a short term position working on the HOK guidebook to sustainable design. I didn't intend to stay. But you know, I realized pretty quickly that if you have an amazing team, then it doesn't really matter what size of a firm you work for. And through that process, I already, I also realized the level of impact that I could have when I had access to, you know, hundreds and thousands of people whose minds I could, could sway around issues like sustainability and health it was a very, very tempting. And then on a personal level, I also learned that I enjoy really complicated projects, big projects with messy problems. And that over time led me to work on very large projects, which of course are primarily done by very large firms. Um, I have really appreciated the ability to make a broad impact and touch those very large projects with very large environmental footprints mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think I ever could have if I'd worked for the type of small firm I always imagined for myself. Well, um, and just for a little context for any listeners who might not know, the guidebook to, um, to sustainable design, what Mara is referring to, and maybe tell me when the first edition came out, Mara, because I'm not sure I'd be able to cite that correctly. I believe it was 1999 or 2000. Right. So I just wanted to timestamp that a little for people. Um, and also mention, I'll give it a little even farther back in the way back. Um, <laughs> because, 
and, and this actually relates to HOK and what that large firm was doing and thinking about at that time, because it was a, before it was a book, it was a comb bound, this is really old, it's really dating myself, but a comb bound thing that was Xerox um, and shared with other firms as kind of a, a bit of a checklist. I mean, it had a lot of categories and things. This was pre, remembering this was sort of pre, you know, as lead was forming. Um, and other firms were using this, you know, intelligence to set up their own green teams and set up their own sustainability practices. This was all, it was a very, there was a knowledge sharing thing happening around that time um, that was crystallized in that. And I don't, I will, don't know all the background about what went into HOK leadership deciding to be, to share in that way or to put that out as, I mean, obviously that's IP that has had value for the firm, the book, as the book, but it was a very important moment in terms of a lot of other firms looking to establish themselves in that way. And I just wanted for people to understand what that was that we've referred to a couple of times. Yeah, it, it really became the earliest pragmatic text around how to design a sustainable or green building. And I couldn't have been more impressed with the leadership at HOK at that time to make the decision to invest their own you know, money to support staff to create this book that they were going to then put out into the world. Today, a lot of people might consider that type of thing to be intellectual property mm -hmm. and proprietary to a single firm, um, but that wasn't the mindset at all in that area, era. And I think it really has brought all of us a long way, um, both with the pragmatic value of having that tool, but also with the mindset of being able to share. Absolutely. It was very influential at the time. Um, I remember it. I, I, I definitely do. And, and yeah, because it was very easy to, um, it was, it was easy to understand that something had been done for the first time then, you know, like that this was, they were kind of contributing in a way that no one else had done. Um, which leads me to our next question for you, Mara, which is about what you're most proud of accomplishing um, in your career. Um, and I, you know, it's probably hard to pick one thing, but when you think about what you've been able to accomplish so far, what, uh, what grabs you? I would say that on an individual level, getting the FAIA last year is really a big one. It recognizes all of my individual accomplishments all packaged together as one. Um, but beyond that, I'm really proud of my ability to be able to communicate broadly with a, a wide range of stakeholders to advance sustainability, even if I don't, for example, use the word sustainability. You know, that might mean hardcore environmentalists in California or clim climate deniers in deep red states. I had a client recently um, in a deep red state, somebody who is a, a hospital administrator, not a design professional, refer, mention offhand that he channeled his inner Mara in a meeting with his colleagues in which he was supporting health and well-being and sustainability in their broader work. And it's, though, it's moments like those that make me the proudest when I realize what kind of ripple effect I'm able to make on changing the way that people think and the way that they act 
after I, you know, after I've left their project or after we're finished with our work together. I love that. I, it, it is a certain type of thing. And I think um, you seem to do that pretty naturally, but I, I think it's uh, for, for some people actually have to work at it. It's, it's, this, it's this art of being persistent and, you know, somewhat repetitive and saying like, these are the things that matter and building these long-term relationships with people where they know exactly where you stand on things. And I, I think you've always been very good at that. You kind of have a way of being like, this is, this is who I am and I have standards. <laughs> I, I think being persistent is really important, but it's just as important to be cheerful when you're persistent. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We could have a whole podcast on that. <laughs> Cheerful persistence. I yeah. like it. Yeah. Um, but so is there any project that you're working on these days that you want to talk about? Anything that you think is, is interesting that people might want to know? This is a little tricky. I can't name a lot of names of my projects because most of my current work is pretty confidential. Not that it's, that sounds very exciting and dramatic and it's not, it's not all <laughs> like that. It's just the preference of the individual clients. Um, but the work that, I think is most exciting right now are the really big projects where, and I have a couple of them, where I'm working with organizations that may or may not necessarily have sustainability as a core part of their mission, um, but we've been able to work together, either us with them or them with other stakeholders to connect the dots and really identify very clearly that their actions in creating a new building and oftentimes a large new building has a direct impact on the health of their communities, the health of the building occupants and the rest of the world. And so we're leveraging their interest in, in some of those impacts to drive carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions way, way down both with respect to building operations, but also with respect to embodied carbon of building materials. And that's been very exciting to watch happen. Laura, that makes me wonder too about um, specific things that you've learned from healthcare design that are becoming more relevant in other building types. I mean, obviously we've talked about health and wellness being pretty front of mind right now, but I'm thinking just about what healthcare design can teach those other building types and what you've seen maybe within HOK, perhaps, as you mentioned, they do a lot of building types. Yeah, there are a lot of pretty interesting things I've personally learned from healthcare over the years. It's a almost a mindset, the way that we think about designing space that I'm now translating that mindset into other building types, oftentimes without even really thinking about it. Um, that includes the way that we ventilate buildings and that's not just outside air, um, or filtration. It also mm -hmm. includes the effectiveness and the way that the air moves within spaces and over people about how we can get that air out, you know, once the, you know, once the air gets germy, so to speak, how we can get it out of there as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are also a lot of issues related to cleanable materials, cleanability in general, um, support for hand washing. I mean, my goodness, who, know, who would have ever thought that hand hygiene was ever going to be such a hot topic? Um, all of these are strategies that have been so fundamental to healthcare design for a long time, but really are trickling into the way we think about other buildings now as well. Yeah, so um, I, I want to, oh, well, there's a lot to say about hand washing. I love the cleanability <laughs> thing, by the way, um, but I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask you 
about what I will call progress. Can you, I, I'm curious if you see yourself as a part of a movement or, or do you think about your work in that way? I do. And I think it's important, not so much because of the movement in of itself, but because it keeps me going. It's a hard thing emotionally to view yourself as a single isolated person floating around out in the greater world, um, working on a bigger goal all by yourself. Not only are we bolstered personally when we conceive of ourselves as being part of a larger movement, but we're also more successful when we're pooling our resources and working together. I think it's very important. Yeah, um, that's good. I mean, I, yeah, I think we asked the question partially because I feel, I feel like it's important for us to have that sense that it is a community, that we're all working together. But I'm always curious to know whether, I don't know, honestly, at this point, it seems like we all do feel like a part of it, but uh, <laughs> we don't talk about it always that way. So as a part of that movement, when you think more broadly about however you choose to define it, well, where did you think we would be in the year 2020? Um, is it, is it, uh, is it surprise you in any ways? Well, I sure did not think that we were all going to be working remotely, afraid to get together in, in big or even in small groups. So um, in that sense, I'm pretty, I'm pretty glad that I didn't have any specific goals or criteria uh, or uh, predefined ideas as to where I thought we would be in 2020 as a movement or an industry. I certainly didn't think that we were going to be as focused as health and well-being as we are, not for the right reasons necessarily. But you know, backing up a bit, I will share that I have never set explicit personal or professional targets, either for myself or for the movement, things like by 2020, certain thing X would happen. Instead, I think it's really important to move forward every day, every month, every year to advance the movement and the industry as much as possible, as long as we really stay on a forward moving trajectory. And, you know, I, I think that attitude of just taking it one day at a time, so to speak, and pushing forward as much as possible, it's probably helped me also to weather this current shelter in place situation. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of defining a specific target or a timeline, like the world will open by Easter, the world will <laughs> open on May 1st, the world will open, you know, fill in the blank, and then continuously getting crushed when we don't meet those goals. Right. Um, I'm, I take the long view, and I take the long view with um, movement forward in the sustainability industry as well. That we're, we have to move quickly. We have to move as quickly as possible. We know there are some very, very real and painful thresholds and deadlines for our global circumstances not related to COVID. Uh, related to climate change, among many other things. Um, but I can't, I can't let myself dwell on that or else I will be crushed every time we don't meet a goal. Well, in, in that context, I mean, are there areas that you see progress that really, um, that you feel is, is really good, you know, we're making progress in areas or are there um, other, are there areas that you feel like we're falling behind? Well, I, I mentioned earlier the connection between carbon emissions and health, the connections that we're making on those areas. Yeah. We've absolutely made some amazing, um, amazing leaps in very short amount of time in specific aspects of technology. I mean, my goodness, just look at the, what LED lighting did 
in a few very short years, it went from zero to 60 or, you know, 90 um, pretty much overnight. But we do have some pretty big challenges and those challenges are coming at a pretty big level, which is to say uh, leadership or, or perhaps lack thereof um, anti-leadership at the federal level mm-hmm. has reversed so many of the successes that we have all worked so hard to win over so many years. And it's just absolutely horrifying uh, to, to watch this country move backwards. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we definitely can't let up, unfortunately. And vote, sorry. <laughs> yes, and vote. I did also wanna ask you who you are most inspired by these days, leaders, change makers in any realm that inspires you. I'm very lucky to have the opportunity to work with some pretty amazing change makers at national and international scales. But you know, the ones that I keep coming back to, the ones who I am so inspired by are those people, often my clients, although not always, those people who are embedded deeply within their organizations, possibly forward-thinking progressive organizations, but more often than not, fairly conservative ones, um, where sustainability might be a dirty word. Now, these are people who work against all odds day after day to make change um, one decision at a time, one step at a time. They might not be dramatic in a given moment, mm-hmm. but they're working hard. And that's how we really make change. Yeah, yeah it sort of reminds me of this. Um, I've never really liked the quote, uh, well-behaved women rarely make history. Um, you know this one? I I, I should have. Oh yeah. Yeah, because like um, I don't know. I guess in in our world, a lot uh, a lot of great work has been done by a lot of really patient people working in the background yep. who get the credit, but but who were pretty well behaved, I would say. Right. <laughs> and and I mean, well behaved. I guess I I struggle with like how to define that because I I you know it's not. I think the, the implication there of a well behaved person is someone who's following someone else's rules, but it could also just mean a humble person who's you know, kind and empathetic. <laughs> I think that in many ways that like, you know, and, and doesn't necessarily ever feel like they have to like run out and break, break rules in order to get things done. I, I totally agree. Uh, and, and it is, it's always impressive to me to watch. Um, it's hard to see the beginnings of these people's careers, but as they come to a close, you can sort of see like, oh, they were just fighting the whole time. Just, you know, right. never gave it up. Yeah. I think that these aren't necessarily people who are quote unquote well behaved in the true sense of the word, but they don't misbehave so badly that they're fired. Right. They yeah. Know what the limits are. They're they accepting the system. Hard. Yeah. It, it, yeah. So they work within the system. They push as hard as they can. Um, they make a lot of change, but they don't do it in a way that is a turnoff or get you know makes them stop Um, and oftentimes what we've seen is that these are you know these are people who are doing amazing things behind the scenes where all of a sudden from one day to the next there is an issue raised within an organization um, and all of a sudden the issue that that these people are moving forward behind the scenes becomes prominent and important Mm -hmm. and they have really laid you know laid the groundwork for success once there's 
full executive buy-in for that to skyrocket. Um, and that's when we see much bigger scale successes. Um, but in terms of the inspiration, it's the people who are, are able to do this without necessarily seeing that end in sight, that kind mm -hmm. of glory. Cheers to those people. There are many of them Indeed. out there. Yeah, we, we need them. And, you know, I mean, I think we, we all can see how we need the other type of leadership as well that does sort of, you know, get out there and speak truth to power and all of that. Um, but I think you're right, Mara. It's, it's, uh, we don't talk enough about uh, the group that you're, um, that you're lifting up. So thank you for that. And um, and we were about out of time. So thanks, Mara. This has been really awesome. Thanks to both of you. Yeah, um, yeah, it's been it's been great, and I I hope uh, there's a lot more that we could talk about with Mara's work, and um, I it's it's a nice reminder about the history of HOK. Frankly, I'm, I'm it's just nice to be reminded of of how firms really stood up in the early uh, earlier years of this movement, and yeah, uh, said that we're all in. So um, it's a good it's a great story for the week. Um, so yeah, that's it for us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Uh, thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to our listeners. Please uh, leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people to find us. And we'll see you next week.